0: Uh, good, morning. good morning. As we get situated, I'm going to have you open up to the book of Philippians, like get myself all tacked up. Wish there was some sort of Iron Man suit that went with it, but alas. So we'll be in the book of Philippians, kind of jumping around a little bit. Uh, some of the verses I'll project up on the screen, but sometimes it's just good to see it uh, in your own Bible, so you can follow along and check the context. <clears throat> so I'd like to pray, uh, and when when we do devotions as a family, I always ask the kids, or even before a meal, why do we pray? And thinking sometimes that the answer is going to be, well, because that's how you kill time while the food is cooling off, or I don't know, that's just what we do before we read the Bible. Uh, I'm becoming more convinced that if God's not in this, uh, it's, it's just an exercise. Uh, so I want to put this time before the Lord, uh, specifically that whatever's said here would be of value and whatever's not of value would be instantly forgotten. So uh, we're gonna pray to the Lord, uh, knowing that he's the one who has to bring about change and transformation in us, and he's the one who has to bring about understanding. So uh, let's pray together before we start. God, we're grateful for all that you've made. We're grateful for our existence, uh, for our relationships, for purpose, for meaning and for value. Uh, day by day. Uh, We're thankful for the joy that we find in human community. Uh, We're grateful for all the experiences that we can have. Uh, We're grateful for your word that you've revealed yourself through uh, prophets and poets and in various writing uh, in scripture and we have access to all of that in translations that we can understand. Uh, Forgive us for when we take these things for granted. God, as we uh, look at Philippians this morning, I pray that your spirit would be at work in and among us. Uh, We know that apart from you, we can do nothing, uh, that this is all just beating the air if you're not going to ignite uh, passion in our hearts. Uh, And God, I ask that you would do that. Uh, For those who are here, uh, who are earnestly seeking you and sincere about finding you in your word, God, I pray that you would meet Uh, faith, uh, with insight, and that you would bring about real change and transformation for us today. Amen. So we, uh, and by we I mean Cynthia and I, have been grateful for the series that Pastor Fred has been preaching on the Minor Prophets. Uh, We've been encouraged just at how timely the passages have been. Uh, that I kind of joke with Pastor Fred that, boy, if there was only a way to apply what is being said in the Minor Prophets to our own culture, like sometimes it's not an obvious connection, and then sometimes sometimes it, it really is. And as we've sort of considered, uh, Cynthia and I, how our faith would have us navigate the current circumstances in our culture, we've just been so blessed uh, by, by Pastor Fred's messages. Thinking even of uh, last week, when he preached on Haggai uh, about knowing our faith and about having conviction, about standing for something uh, in the midst of, of darkness. And as a side note, I just want you to appreciate how difficult what Pastor Fred has been doing. To take a single book out of any of the Minor Prophets and to to encapsulate it in just one sermon is is really an incredible feat. Like if you've ever read the Minor Prophets, um, there's a lot of complex stuff going on. So as an aside, I just want to give Pastor Fred props for how he he takes the complexity of, of the message of any of the Minor Prophets and, and puts it in, in such a, a neat and accessible way. And as I was considering what to preach on today, I thought, oh, the next one's Zechariah. I thought, oh, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Go get him, Fred. <laughs> so tune in next week uh, for that. But over the last year, Cynthia and I have had probably a million conversations about how can followers of Jesus be light, shining in dark places in the current climate? What does the church, what do true followers of Jesus have uh, to offer the world? What's the specific task that God has uh, called us to? How can we offer hope and joy, especially in the midst of the widespread buying and selling of fear? That we read uh, 1 John 4.18 and maybe naively we believe it. Perfect love casts out fear. Uh, and I, I don't have too much of a problem confessing that it's it's been kind of a discouraging time thinking about how the church, the people of God, the true followers of Jesus can navigate the current climate in hopeful and joyful ways because perfect love casts out fear. Um, and we live in times where It seems like all that's happening is the buying and selling of fear and at the end of the service last week Pastor Fred suggested reading the book of Philippians uh, throughout the week. I thought brilliant. That's that's just awesome perfect medicine somewhere rolling around in the back of my mind was that Philippians is just a book that's all about joy and it's not a terribly long book. The great theologian Mita Denio, after our first reading of it, said, wow that's a really short book. And it is. Uh, But it's it's a book about joy and it's a book that Paul wrote from prison. Surely dark circumstances if ever you can imagine. And it's a letter to a church that has no huge problems. Now you're all lovely and attractive and upright and You probably can't imagine that there is a church out there somewhere in the far reaches of the universe that has problems. But when you read the New Testament, Philippians is just this beacon of shining light that there really are no significant problems in that church. And when you consider uh, Paul's letters or you consider the whole Bible, this is just a significant thing. When you read Philippians, the letter just exudes this joy and gratitude and thankfulness and appreciation and encouragement. And I decided to follow Pastor Fred's advice, and I decided to drag my family along with me, and we decided to read Philippians throughout the week together. It took 20 minutes, not terribly long. Um, And I asked my kids at the beginning, I want you to just think about what the key words are. What are the key ideas? And what's Paul trying to say to this church? Personally, what I found most edifying about the book of Philippians is Paul's relationship with the Philippians. Now, Paul resonates with me for a lot of reasons. He's not exactly the doting father of the New Testament. uh, That he can be harsh. In some of his letters, he's rather abrasive. uh, Caustic. And he could hardly be considered overly positive as he's dealing with some of the circumstances in these churches. So when somebody like that writes a letter of joy, I'm listening, right? And I want to know what joy is from a biblical standpoint. And how many of you have read Paul's letters? You know, a couple of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Yeah. So you... um, You notice in Philippians, there's just these long extended periods of thankfulness of gratitude that Paul is expressing and then by contrast you go to Galatians where there's not a word of thankfulness in it that Paul starts off his letter by saying Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus sent by the will of God and boom that's it like there's no I thank my God in all my remembrances." there's none of that he just really goes after it and that's what you have to do in situations where where churches have problems but what I really resonated with in this letter is that somebody like Paul, who can be caustic and, and harsh and um, a little bit gruff, a little bit threatening at times, uh, you can see through the book of Acts and through his letters how he's perceived, but for somebody like that to write this book that just exudes joy and encouragement and thankfulness, I just want to know what happened to Paul Uh, or what happened in the circumstances with the Philippians that could make that that the case. So what happened to Paul? Uh, You know the story. Uh, Jesus got a hold of Paul's life and completely reoriented his priorities and Paul was never the same after that and the world was never the same after that. Paul lit it up like you've never seen anything like it Uh, in world history. Uh, The world was completely changed. His life, Paul's life, is forfeit. He's 100% sold out to Jesus. He's blind to all other kingdoms. He's indifferent to all other loyalties. He's not trying to get you to vote a particular way. He's not trying anything. He is singularly focused on loyalty to the gospel. All other kingdoms are nothing in Paul's mind. And I believe in Paul's life and in Philippians in particular, we see this principle at work. And if you have the insert, uh, it has this written right up at the top. When you have a compelling vision of reality, everything else pales in comparison to that vision. Nothing else matters. Now, we see this, um, we see this play out in, in a billion different ways. Does that make sense? So, there comes a time when you notice the attractiveness of the opposite gender. And I remember it was counselor Cindy. You, some of you who have been here a long time, you know, she used to be Cindy Lawry. But I noticed her at Camp Pattersonville and all of a sudden things changed. Daily showers became non-negotiable. Deodorant? Yes. Let's have that. Shaving? Of course. Combing my hair, absolutely. Making intelligent contributions, now I'm on board. And why? Because I am trying to attract the attention of this lovely creature. It alters your whole reality. When you have a compelling vision of reality, it changes everything. And if you remember back to a time where that was the case, all of a sudden you're, you're jumping up from the dinner table to do dishes. Why would you do that? Because you're, you're just trying to attract the attention uh, of, of somebody. What would compel a person in the middle of December to stand at Gillette Stadium and paint the Patriots logo on their bare chest and stand out in the freezing cold to cheer the team on to victory? That is their compelling vision of reality. And here's how I I know. That never happens in any other circumstance. Right When you're sitting in a meeting, uh, n- uh, I hope, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong, uh, but you never stand up when somebody makes an excellent point. And you're like, yeah, and y- you've got the, the school logo or the company logo spray-painted on your chest. right? You, you, don't, you don't do that. And why? It's not quite the same thing. Um, we were at Fenway over the summer, and I knew it was, they were playing the Yankees. Uh, and it was David Ortiz, it was the last time I was ever going to get to see him bat live, and I just stood up through the hole at bat. And I can tell you in meetings at work, I never do that. Like when somebody's right on the cusp of making a great point, you don't stand up in anticipation of this brilliant insight that they're about to make and then, yeah, and then you run around and high five everybody at the table. It doesn't happen, right? Now it's a little bit silly, but you understand the principle that when you have a compelling vision of reality, everything else it just pales in comparison to that nothing else nothing else matters and that's what happened to paul and moreover that's what happened to the philippians jesus offered them a compelling vision of reality and nothing will ever be the same again for paul he forfeits what would have been a profitable and successful life from the world's perspective he's a successful guy he's brilliant He's got all the right connections, and he's got a brilliant future in front of him. And he forfeits all of that for the sake of Jesus Christ. For the Philippians, this is where you just want to dive into the New Testament. Uh, like literally, uh, not you, you want to be in this church to sort of see what was happening. They're almost falling over themselves to serve, to grow, to pray, to partner with Paul. They learn, and they're surely learning, to count all their worldly prestige as nothing. So for the Philippians, they're a Roman outpost. They're they're a Roman colony. They have much to be proud of. They hold that as a point of national pride. Completely irrelevant. Jesus comes and nothing else matters. And this is one of those letters where again, they're just falling over themselves to pray, to grow, to partner with Paul. Because of what God has accomplished in Christ, nothing else matters. Reality is just completely different. So again, when you have a compelling vision of reality, everything else pales in comparison to that vision and nothing else matters. Now the reverse is also true. When you have no compelling vision of reality, Everything's the same, right? There's no point in loyalty. There's no point in partnering with people. You don't have any compelling vision of reality. You don't have any stake anywhere. You're not vested in anything. You're not passionate about anything. What's the point in taking a shower? You're just going to get dirty again. What's the point in making your bed? What's the point in showing up for work? who cares? So the opposite is also true. When you have no uh, compelling vision of reality, you're like a rudderless ship. So I want to look at a few passages in Philippians today that highlight this and to see what joy in the gospel really is and what effect it has on God's people, on the Philippians in particular. And my ultimate hope is that some of us can catch this vision for the first time, or that some of us can rekindle that vision in our own hearts, because I believe that we're uniquely positioned at this point in our history to offer the world something. Where there is the buying and selling of fear day after day, hour after hour, we can hold out hope for the future. We can hold out joy in all of our circumstances. Not dependent on what happens, but we can get excited about the right things and we can offer hopeful and joyful ways forward. So on your insert, uh, in, case, in case you're curious, uh, I just listed all of the uses of the word joy or rejoice. Philippians is a letter of joy. And there are all those references there for you to see. And I think it was on either the second or the third reading of Philippians as a family that even the youngest amongst us could, re- could determine what the key word was. Like, and I'm not saying that to, to be degrading, but it's by time and effort, by actually doing it, you see that the repeated looking at the text yields insight. That the more you read the text, the more things jump out at you right and in reading it it's not that there's something new every time but there's certainly different nuances to things as you read it and i believe that scripture is living and active that's what hebrews says about the word of god so that god can actually be at work in us as we're reading his his word it's not just an artifact of history so first up is philippians 1:12 to 21 so this idea that nothing else matters, and I'm going to read. Actually, I'm going to ask one of you to read. Uh, could I have somebody read 12 to 21? Rebecca.
1: But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or truth, Christ is preached. And because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have (coughs) sufficient courage. So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, For to me, to live in, is, in, is Christ and to die is
0: given. Thank you. Now, Paul, of all people, could be well within his rights, couldn't he, to wonder what God is doing. Right? I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm pretty important. I'm awfully intelligent. Why is it that I'm in prison? Um, God, I don't seem to be living my best life now, like, I don't know if I, I missed the memo here, but I am your representative among the Gentiles, and I'm in prison. So surely anybody who had the right to whine about their circumstances is right here. And yet, what is his focus? You tell me, what, what is his focus? Joy. Joy? Be more specific. Rejoicing in? Okay, even more specific. His circumstances have led to the furtherance of the gospel in two ways. One is there are people in Caesar's household, among the palace guard, people who are hearing the message for the first time. That is amazing and should bring joy to all of us. The second group of people are people who are already Christians. And how does it affect them? It spurs them on on to preach the word more boldly. To live ever more faithfully for Christ. Seeing that if Paul can do that, surely the rest of us can do it as well. So that's the effect. The advance of the gospel. That's all Paul cares about. Now, there's another part here that I think maybe sometimes we gloss over. But I think what is most amazing to me is that Paul is so intimate with Christ. He's not even bothered by the fact that there are people in the church who are only preaching Christ to cause him angst. I don't think we ever stop to think about that for a second. Imagine somebody going out of their way to preach or to teach or to disciple or to do God's work only to bring you angst. Anybody sticking around for something like that? Anybody feeling like that's a really good and godly thing to do? They're seeking to cause Paul misery in his circumstances. And we don't know what that means specifically. I think at a minimum, we have Corinthians where they're just all about criticizing Paul right? That he's not a very winsome speaker and, you know, he needs a little bit more flash. There's a lot of stake there, but we like a little bit more sizzle because we're so, we're so sophisticated. So we can imagine that there are people that are publicly and privately criticizing Paul. We don't know, but we don't want to miss it, that this is extraordinary faith. To be able to say that what has happened to me has led to the furtherance of the gospel, that's amazing enough. But there are people who are going out of their way to cause Paul agony while he's in prison. I mean, talk about trying to kick a person while they're down. That's why they're preaching Christ. But even that is a source of joy for Paul. Why? Whether pure motives or not, Christ is preached. And in that I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice is what Paul said. So what they say, what they do, it doesn't really matter. Nothing matters to Paul except that the gospel is spreading. And if this is honest confession time, if I can confess this before you, I could never do that. Like I look at the apostle Paul there and I say, that is extraordinary, heroic faith. Do any of you feel like you could do that? Because I feel for myself, I would quit over far less. Far less than that but somebody actually preaching to make you miserable. Not like what I'm doing right now, like I'm, I'm sure you're experiencing high levels of misery, but I'm not doing it to make you miserable. But imagine somebody just showing up in those circumstances and they just wanna cause Paul angst, they would just wanna shove his face in it while he's in prison. That's their motives. And yet in the darkness of those circumstances to say, doesn't matter what they do. And why, points right there, this kingdom is not mine. Paul, I believe in full sincerity can say, this kingdom is not mine. I'm not building it. This is Christ's kingdom. Therefore, in those circumstances, I can transcend all of that junk. I can put up with people's snarky remarks because I'm not building my own kingdom. I'm building Christ's kingdom. And then he goes even a step farther to say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do you do with a guy like that? You can't touch him. Like you can't make him miserable. There's nothing you can do to a person like this. Imprison him. He'll win the whole prison to Christ. That's what's happening here. Paul, by Christ's power, is in charge of the two people that are chained to him. It's hilarious in a way that throw him in prison, he'll win the whole prison to Christ. Set him free, he'll light the world on fire, metaphorically. Like the book of Acts ends, I believe, with him in Rome. That's the center of power in the whole universe at the time. And it took him like 15 minutes to get there. Unreal. What do you do with a guy like that? So it compels me to ask the question, what happened to this guy? Because I look at that, that is a compelling vision of reality. Whatever he's selling, I want to buy it. Because that... To be able to transcend circumstances like that uh, is, again, compelling. But Paul just so radiates the life of Christ. He's just completely given over to the will of God. And he has such intimacy with Christ that all that matters is either being with Jesus or serving God's people. Nothing else. Nothing else matters. That's life. Life. To know Jesus is to touch life, and you're never the same. And I look at Paul in these circumstances, and all of his circumstances, and you just see life. And I don't know if you've encountered Christians like that, where you just experience there was life here. And again, bringing it up into the modern day, we are uniquely positioned as God's people to offer that to the world. When people come into our midst, they can experience Life. If we're ready, if we're faithful, if we're in a position where we're so intimate with Christ that it just overflows to be a blessing to other people. That's life. Then we fast forward a little bit to Philippians 3. And you know this story. Paul says, if anybody has reason to boast, it's me. So he's going to go on about his resume. And none of us is even close to as impressive as Paul is circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews among the Jews, a Pharisee, the strictest strictest of, of the Jews of the time, as to righteousness under the law, faultless. Nobody's better than me is what Paul is saying. Religiously, I'm top shelf. But what is the conclusion that he draws? Compared, right, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, that stuff is nothing. It's junk. It's rubbish. I have to apologize to whoever interacts with, uh, I, I won't use his name, but he's in, my, he's in my clan, and I was just telling the kids what, when it says that I consider it rubbish. The word there is, is uh, skubala, uh which actually does mean excrement. Um, but tidied up in translation for you. And I may have shared that uh, with <laughs> the youngest in my clan. So if you teach Isaac's Sunday school class, uh, that might come up. But he's not wrong. There's a time and a place for everything, of course. but. You may want to carefully avoid that passage unless you want them to get a little carried away. But anyway, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, that religious resume is is nothing. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. He says, I want to know Christ. How many of us can say that? My job is great. It's a means to support my family. I'm very impressive there. I mean, I'm talking hypothetically, certainly not about myself. But maybe, I imagine many of you are very impressive in your workplaces. Um, but to say that nothing there matters except to know Christ. How many of us can honestly say that we're so intimate with Christ that that's, that's the source of life for us? And that to me is the invitation, right? It's not as much of a challenge as I look at Christ and I, I look at Paul, excuse me, And I say, what must have happened to that guy? And where do I sign up? That's what I want. So again, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And I want to become like him in his death. How many of you woke up this morning with that? (laughs) Uh, D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar who wrote a book, just a short little book on Philippians. Um, where he starts off with saying, I'll have $2 worth of gospel, please. Uh, $2 worth of gospel meaning I want enough gospel that my kids are well-behaved and that my family is well-thought-of, but not so much gospel that I actually give up everything and go overseas to serve Christ. I'll have $2 worth of gospel, please. And he goes through this whole scenario. Such that I'm well-thought-of and respected at work, But not so much that I actually sign up to teach like a five-year-old Sunday school class because that's like torture in other countries. (laughs) Sorry, did I just say that out loud? Yeah, I guess I did. But I want want just $2 uh, worth of gospel. What Christ is offering, or what Paul is offering here, excuse me, I did it again, is just this vision of I want to know Christ and I want to share in his sufferings and I want to become like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want to follow the path that Jesus blazed. That's what Paul wants. And nothing else matters. How many of us can say that? Now there's an effect. So we've talked about what nothing else matters means to Paul. I want to look just real quickly at the Philippians and say, what does it mean when nothing else matters? The first thing that it means is God's people can live like Jesus. I'm going to say that again. I don't want to scandalize anybody, but God's people can live like Jesus. So many of you are familiar with this great theological statement in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, very God of very God. And that's the passage we use to defend that Jesus is God. And it's an excellent passage to do that. If you have any questions about it, I'm sure you can ask Ben Bluing. Uh, now that he is a doctrinal black belt. As well as an actual black belt, I, I was going to come up with a sign-up sheet that you could sign up for Ben to protect you for a day. I was just going to have Ben just come around with me. I, I have somewhat of a frail disposition. I, I don't like it. Uh, I, don't, I don't like violence. I like to run away from it. But if I had Ben with me all the time, I could pick fights and have him finish them. <laughs> that was a joke. <clears throat> so. Um, God's people can live like Jesus. And one of the terribly ironic things about this passage is we use it theologically and we use it to kind of draw divisions and all of this stuff. The whole point of the passage is actually that you can live like Jesus. The chapter starts with, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That's what Paul writes before this. And he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He uses Jesus as a sermon illustration. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't cling to his rights. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. I know, it's radical. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I don't know how that works in a political ad. That's a very different vision of reality. This is what the true church has to offer the world. Not more loud shouting. Not winning in the way that the world defines winning. Not competing, not whining about your rights, but people who find their glory, their exaltation, because that's what it says. Therefore, because of this humbling himself, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Because of his willingness to do that, to humble himself and become obedient to death, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you read that passage, it's not about winning theological points. It's an illustration of what our community life should look like not competing, not clinging to rights, people who find their glory in serving other people. Now, if I were pitching the church to you, and this was my, my sales pitch, is that a community that you want to be a part of? You can answer. Yeah, okay, me too. Uh, it wasn't a trick question. To be a part of a group of people who are forgiving each other, who are being reconciled to one another, who have such a compelling vision of reality that they're just giving their lives away to each other and to those outside the church. That's, that's something I'd sign on for, certainly. So when nothing else matters, God's people can live like Jesus. What else can God's people do? Go to 4:15, Philippians 4.15. As you know, Paul writes, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. So when nothing else matters, God's people can live like Jesus. God's people can also be generous. And I don't know about you, I would want to be that church. I don't want to be reading Philippians while I'm over at Ephesus, especially reading the part, no other church did this. Ouch. Ouch. So these letters would have been read publicly. Uh, So when you're coming across things like that, it's not like you can sort of sneak that to one or two people. That's read before the assembly. And what does it say about the Philippians? Philippians when nothing else matters you can be generous you could be the only church that is giving to the mission of the apostle paul so again is that a community that you want to be a part of where people give of all of their resources where they hold nothing back from each other that looks pretty compelling to me a group of people who don't show up in terms of well what am i getting out of this really People who are there to serve. That's what they had at Philippi. If I could somehow hop in the time machine just to see what it looked like. They're just falling over themselves to be an encouragement to Paul. It's pretty cool. The last one, it's not on your insert, but if you want to write down those references, when nothing else matters, God's people are on the right side. Paul writes about the enemies of the gospel. He writes about those who are pushing circumcision, who say you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. He talks about those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their stomach, meaning that they're never satisfied. It's just all about them. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. That's Philippians 3. So it's a fair question to ask, whose side are we on? Now, I put together some uh, resources for further reflection. I know how um, there's just a lot of buckshot here. It's a very short period of time. And I am getting worse in terms of how much time I think it takes for ideas to really s- to set root and to, uh, to percolate. I-, I need a lot of time, and it's probably just because I'm slow. But I like to spread this kind of reflection over a long period of time. So I'm, I'm putting some stuff here that you can take it or leave it. If something here really resonates with you, these are opportunities for you to go further, no extra charge. First, in order to, uh, to gain a compelling vision, I think you have to see a compelling vision. So the first thing I would recommend for further reflection is um, to watch Life is Beautiful. Has anyone ever watched this? Yeah. Now, this is a film that can be watched on multiple uh, levels. One, if you haven't seen it, I guess I should probably tell you, it's this beautiful, I think it's just this little parable of joy. And it's basically two halves. The first half is uh, how Guido wins over this woman. And he is as compelling a character as you're going to find. I just, I think it's brilliant. so, the whole first half of the movie is how he wins this woman over to, to be his wife. And there's all kinds of joy, and he's just so singularly focused. And it's not one of these like allegory kind of things where, like, you know, Guido is Jesus and him going to the concentration camp is dying on the cross. Like, don't watch it that way. I know you're Christians, but you just got to transcend that for a couple minutes. It's not the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, it's, it, you got to get more of a, more of a flavor. Uh, so, anyway enough of my shot. Uh, so the whole first half of the movie is him winning, winning over his wife. The second half is he, he's married now. He has a family, their young son right there. Um, and he is a Jew living in Italy during World War II, and they are taken away to a concentration camp. So the whole second half of the film is how he and his son survive in a, tra- a concentration camp. And it's not even a real story, right? And, and this is what happens to me. Like to watch it. Um, and his wife, who's not Jewish, uh, she is so compelled by his love that when, when her family's taken, she goes to, Like wherever they are, that's where I want to be. And it's just this beautiful, gut-wrenching picture of joy. And I'm not saying it's Christian, and I'm not saying that you know Aslan's going to come out of, the, out of the woodwork and die for everybody's sins. Like that's not going to happen. But it is this beautiful portrait of joy. So watch it. Get a vision of what this kind of joy looks like. To be so singularly focused on something uh, that it brings you joy. So the film can be watched on multiple levels. One is there's this tragic kind of humor of how callous people can be in the face of of awful human atrocities. So you can reflect meaningfully on the psychology of how a human being can endure. Uh, If if you want to transport yourself out of the... uh, out of the fictitious world and into the real world, Viktor Frankl has, uh, has reflected on this. He's a neurologist and a psychiatrist, but he's also a holocaust survivor, and he wrote a lot about how can human beings endure these kinds of, of circumstances. But I believe at its heart that this is a film that offers a pretty compelling vision of joy. So you could watch that. The next thing you could try, oh, I don't think you're going to be able to read that, but it's okay. It's in your Bible. Uh, Consider Philippians 4, 8, and 9. And many of you have before, I know. But it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So spend some time considering that, but spend some time considering it in light of two very specific questions. One, ask yourself, in what ways am I receiving such thoughts? How am I doing in terms of reflecting on things that are good, noble, excellent, praiseworthy? Do I spend my time regularly engaged, watching, reading, listening to things, that are excellent, noble, beautiful, praiseworthy. In what ways am I receiving such thoughts? And it might be time to do a little cleaning house. The next thing you could do is ask yourselves, in what ways am I producing such thoughts for others? In my conversation with people, do they walk away more bold in their faith? Similar to what Paul described earlier. Am I offering a vision that is noble, good, beautiful, such that people walk away and they feel like they came near life? Am I producing those kind of things? Or, on the flip side, am I rushing to social media to communicate to the world how offended I am by everything? Or spewing more hate-filled rhetoric out there for the world to see? Are you producing good noble beautiful righteous things for people to reflect on to put into practice or not so consider that there's also a list of quotes on the back of your yeah that's not gonna you got all this on the back of your insert uh, but spend some time thinking about these and i am as i said getting worse I just got to sit for a long while in God's presence and to really prayerfully consider these things, to ask God to to penetrate my heart and to open me up to things that I'm not really considering. Those who are holy gods are always satisfied, for they desire only that which he wills and are ready to do whatever he requires. I could sit for a week on that and say, does my life really reflect that quote? Can I say, like in the next quote, whatever Christ wants, I want. Period. Exclamation point. Whatever he wants, I want. Third, double-mindedness is wholly destructive to the spiritual life. What do you think about that? Double-mindedness, it's really simple. I'm trying to live in both worlds. I want $2 worth of gospel. I'm double-minded. When God is loved wholeheartedly, when he is our compelling vision, all other things are a matter of indifference. It doesn't mean that they're not important, right? Paul doesn't not use his education in writing the New Testament. He says, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, I consider all this stuff as rubbish. So those are all opportunities for you to spend some more time reflecting on this. And what would it take for us to live that way? Surely God has to do it, uh, but surely we have to confront our way of being in the world too. So do we view our circumstances in light of the gospel's progress? Are we indifferent about our circumstances because everything next to knowing Christ is junk? What would it take for us to live that way? Are people more bold in their faith because they know us? By being around us, have they experienced life? Now, I alluded earlier to the fact that um, one of the things that I find compelling is the relationship between Paul and the Philippians. And for Paul, in the circumstances that he's in, it's not hard to imagine that that would be pretty discouraging. That you are the apostle to the Gentiles, You're called by God. You had this incredible blinding vision of Jesus, and here you are sitting in this prison. And I think, what must it have been like for Paul to think of the Philippians? To just have that joy of knowing that if nothing else, it worked there. To think about the generosity, the partnership that the Philippians are experiencing with him as Paul is, in many ways, just wasting away in that prison. What a source of joy that must be. And this can offer us a slightly different motivation for things. So I want to ask, uh, what about the ways that we bless those inside the church? Thinking of how the Philippians bless Paul, I was actually thinking of Pastor Fred, And this might seem a little bit weird to you. um, But I think of, like the Apostle Paul to the Philippians, I think of all the ways that he has invested in the life of this church. And I think of the ways that he's invested in my family. And when I, I, I have this imaginative scenario in my head where Paul is thinking about the Philippians, and it just brings joy to his heart. And I have as a motivation I guess as part of a motivation um, that I want Pastor Fred to think of me in that way. That when he considers the countless hours that I have annoyed him and egged his house and I'm just kidding I haven't really egged his house but I have annoyed him a lot over the years but I think back over the whole course of my time uh, you know being a part of of the life of this church but more being uh, in relationship with Pastor Fred and I've been, I shared this before with the Sunday school class, so I apologize for that. I'm repeating myself. You'll get over it. I promise. Um, maybe not. But I've been doing this kind of spiritual autobiography where you, you think about what are the big events in my life and who are the big influencers. And I've been writing a lot of letters uh, to, to people that I'm, I'm grateful for. Uh, that like, wow, if you hadn't shown up, <laughs> my faith is not anywhere near where it would be. Your influence has meant everything. Uh, and I think about these people. And I think like Paul, when, I, when, I, when Pastor Fred thinks of me, I want him to think in the way that Paul thinks of the Philippians. That here is a partner. Here's somebody who, who's really in the game. I don't want him to be frustrated or like, oh, here he comes again. Like, that, that might seem a little weird to you, I admit, because the whole paradigm is flipped here. It's all about, like, one person doing everything, and seldom, if ever, do we collectively think of how can I be a blessing to uh, my leadership. And that's what the Philippians are doing. They're sending Epaphroditus, right? When you read about Epaphroditus in Philippians, they're just sending their best. They're praying for Paul. They're partnering in the gospel. They're giving financially. That's a compelling vision of reality. And I want for Fred to see the fruit of all the ways that he's Invested. And I want him to experience joy and encouragement, not that he's been so winsome, though he has been, that he's so wise, but that it was the power of Christ in and through him that impacted my family. I want him when he thinks of me for Paul, like he thinks of the Philippians, that might seem a little bit weird to you, but it's, it's where I'm at. We have lightning in a jar here. It's a time in our culture where we have an opportunity to offer joy, hope, and a compelling vision of the future, even a compelling vision of the present. People around us are dying in so many ways. They're fearful. They're anxious. They're hopeless. They're lost. They're dissatisfied. We have the opportunity to be so intimate with Christ, That it overflows to be a blessing to everybody. So the question is, if not us, then who? And if not now, when? What are we waiting for? This is a compelling vision of the future. This is what Paul experienced. This is what the Philippians, and this is what, by God's grace, we can experience as well. Let's pray.